0: It is Conspiranormal. You don't want to
1: show people that insane uh, tack board behind me that has uh, Mothman pictures and UFO and Lee Harvey Oswald. With the string. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually a real thing. There's there's no string, though. (laughs)
2: Oh. Is there a connection between Lee Harvey Oswald and the Mothman? Yeah. We we, we, we want
1: to know. I could make one if you want there to be one. Okay. The people on my board, this is actually really funny. The people on my board are actually sectioned into things like smokers and non-smokers. And uh, like who I think would probably be the most left-leaning and who would be the right-leaning. Like I have them separated up into their peer social groups.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Okay. These Just, are historical figures, or these are current well, figures?
1: Well, mostly historical figures and people who are, like, uh, paranormally minded. So I have, like, you know, like Richard Shaver is right next to John Keel and Jim Mosley. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, okay. But,
1: you know, like, uh, uh, let's see, well, I'm trying to look at this board here. But, like, Robert Stack is down by the bottom by John F. Kennedy. Okay. <laughs>
2: The strange connection between Kennedy and Robert (laughs) Stack.
1: They rolled in that weird Hollywood, that was a whole Hollywood circle.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I guess what was the Peter Lawford, I guess, probably would have been the connection. Yeah. Because wasn't he married to like JFK's sister or
1: something like that? Yeah. Or they were dating or engaged or something. I, you know, you guys know as well as anyone relationships with the Kennedys didn't go very well. (laughs) No, that's,
2: that's very true. That's very true. Well, John, we're going to talk about the book, but you know, like I always enjoy talking to you. So, I mean, we, we, if we stray from the book, I mean, that's totally fine.
3: Yeah, that's fine.
2: I mean, honestly, whatever topic you want to talk about, I mean,
3: yeah. 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 We both we both got the book too and read it so it's it's oh, so really you're good, part of
1: man. you're part of the experiment. Yeah. 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 I want to talk
2: to you about that. Is that something <laughs> that you want to sure. – like why is this thing and an
1: experiment? Not, uh to a certain degree. I mean I can't tell you exactly what it is, but we can discuss yeah. the concept of it.
2: Okay. 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 All right, cool. All right, guys. Welcome back to conspirator. Normal. And we're just going to jump right in because we already have. And we have John Tinney on the line, one of our favorite guests. John, I think this might be like the fifth or sixth time I've had you on. I'm not not even certain at this point.
1: And this is, uh, I think there was a huge gap between the last time I was on and the time before that. I think there was like a two-year gap. Yeah, it was something like that. because and this, you, is, this is shorter now. This is only like seven months. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, it's not,
2: been, it's not been that long. I think it was like back in November we had you on when we talked to you and Aaron Gullius yep. and uh, Richard Haddam. I think you had all three of you guys on for a roundtable episode. That
3: but was yeah. a really good
2: one. That was yeah. a good one. I'll definitely
3: tell people to go back and check it out if you haven't heard it. Well, you had set
2: us up with uh, Craig Ciccone. Oh, and, Yeah. Uh, Craig just like uh, I had him on for a couple like two or three episodes and I need to get him back on because it's been a while since I've had him on now.
1: You know what? uh, Craig is actually would probably be a great guest for you guys right now because, you know, Craig has spent the past, I don't even know, eight or 10 years writing a comprehensive book about Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party.
3: Yeah, we we did talk to him a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, and I think that would be a really interesting topical and insightful interview for right now.
2: Yeah, it's been so long that we could probably just go ahead and just do a whole interview just on that. Yeah. Honestly, because that was an episode that we did in 2014, I want to say, and we talked about um all the assa- most of the assassinations of the 60s and then mm-hmm. Fred Hampton was in 69, so it's funny, John, because like A lot of people, because of everything that's going on right now, a lot of people – some people are actually just now finding out about that. Like I have a good friend of mine. She posted about it. She's like, I had no idea. And I was like, I've known about this forever. Like this is –
1: I mean that's the failings of our institutional – our educational systems, right? Yeah, Yep. How many kids are not taught? I mean, I grew up in middle, you know, middle class white America, and I didn't know about Fred Hampton. I I live on the outskirts of Detroit and grew up with African-American friends my whole life. And I didn't know about Fred Hampton until I was 16 or 17 years old, had never heard the name, didn't know anything about the the Black Panther movement. Like, it was just completely cut out because it wasn't discussed in school.
2: Yeah, yeah. Nobody knew about just like that he was basically assassinated. I mean,
3: oh, yeah, along yeah. with yeah, along with almost all of the Panther leadership assassinated.
2: Yes, first time I heard about it was in the middle two thousands back when I was going deep into like the conspiracy rabbit hole, and really back then, and I want to, and we're going to talk about some of this later, but like the cons- the conspiracy oriented stuff was really anti Bush and anti establishment and still, and people were just like uncovering and some of the stuff that had happened from the sixties.
1: Oh yeah. Well, Fred Hampton's uh, FBI file is still sealed. He's, he's one of the people that, you know, Craig has had a open FOIA request for like 20 years to get those documents and they're still sealed.
2: Wow. And he's still not been able to get anything. from Nope. That. Nope. Yeah is he so he still is like actively working on that book
1: i think he is absolutely yeah i mean i found out about it because that was when i was 16 or 17 is when i met craig and craig introduced me to uh paul lee who is a malcolm x scholar and so that's where those conversations were generated from so i was lucky that i fell into that group of people otherwise i probably wouldn't have known about it either
2: yeah yeah there was a lot of stuff about malcolm x too that was weird Oh well, yeah,
1: and, you know, the other thing for me, too, is weird because, you know, there, there's a whole Malcolm X might have talked to an extraterrestrial thing, you know. Do you guys know about that?
2: Really? No, we know about mm-hmm. uh, Farrakhan. We know all about that stuff.
1: Right. But no, Malcolm X talked about being visited in prison by the spirit of Allah or what he thought was uh, a spirit and so you know people have said like is that an occult thing was someone remote viewing to him was someone astral projecting to him uh was an extraterrestrial so there's a whole ball of wax there to melt down
3: greg bishop recently had this guy stephen finley on who's an academic who uh what he's been um talking about is this uh, idea of the nation of islam as a ufo religion
1: yeah i mean i've heard it too and you know well it, it that's the whole thing is it goes back to the concepts that you guys are well aware of. And I'm sure your listeners are too, of like, we're just calling things names due to our frames of reference. So, you know, if you look at even books, whether you're not, you are okay with the research done, but you know, the books written by like Hillary Evans about like combining the ideas of apparitions, ghosts, spirit sightings, uh, Fatima, UFOs, like it's all se- sim- seems to be similar experiences that we're just all giving its own a different name based on our perspective.
3: Right, yeah. and in, in the United States, race being something that separates people so much, you know, some so much of these narratives that have similarities are so unknown to each other.
1: Right. Um, well, I so mean, the fact the fact that Albert Bender, when Albert Bender first saw the Men in Black, they were African American men. He described them and drew them as being black men.
2: I've never heard that part. That's oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. You look at the pictures that he drew. He drew black men. And he Dude. saw them. He saw them after doing a magical ritual.
2: Right. Right. Because he was like, They're in students. Students. he was huge. Yeah. He was huge into the, into the occult. And a lot of people don't know, don't know that oh. the, the origin of the men in black come from an occultist essentially.
3: So since they're in suits, you know they could be like the the fruit of Islam, the uh, the security uh, part of the nation of Islam, or tr- or
1: they could be Loa who are depicted in suits with hats on.
3: I just
2: remember there was a headline from the Onion one time that said. Well, they we got uh, deep
1: really fast, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no yeah. doubt. I, I remember it.
2: there was a there was a headline from the Onion one at one time that said uh, "fruit of Islam makes man soil fruit of the looms." right Uh <laughs> right, so 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 john you got uh you have a book out uh, yeah kind of and kind of <laughs> and it's called theoretical weirdo
3: weirdo
2: so <laughs> what is the uh what does that title mean and also we understand that this is kind of part of an experiment
1: yeah so i had been looking at things that I had been writing and saying in my lectures for years. And uh, I'm a much better speaker, presenter and lecturer than I am an author. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to give people short bursts of things that I've written over the years and said over the years, little like chapters of two or three pages, just things that blast through my mind. And I'm going to give them stuff that I've written from 10 years ago and 12 years ago. So that hopefully, you can see even a progression in my thoughts about the things that I'm writing about and thinking about. And hopefully that'll allow people to move into deeper areas of thought and construct better ideas. But the, the name theoretical weirdo came because I kept reading people in the paranormal, supernatural, and even skeptical community who kept posting quotes from theoretical physicists. And I thought, Like, what does that term mean? Like, so are you a physicist that just thinks about things like that's your job? You're uh, you think about physics, you're you theorize about physics and I think about weird stuff. So I must be a theoretical weirdo like that's my specialty is weirdos and weird stuff. And I think about theories about them. So I'm a theoretical weirdo. Uh, and so I just threw that title on there. I actually had problems getting that book published because the, my picture is upside down and the, on the front cover. And yeah, the,
2: that that, that kind of messed with me a little bit when
1: I took it out of the box. <laughs> that's, the, that's good. That's good. Um, but, yeah, even the publisher didn't want to print it that way because they were like, this is going to look confusing when it's on, like, book stands and stuff. And I said, no, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to happen. Just shift your mind for a second even. Um, but the other thing. Uh, so, yes, it is part of an experiment. So also, we live in a world right now where anybody can publish a book, you can go online, you can upload anything and have it printed on demand uh, to tonight, you know, basically it takes 48 hours or 72 hours or whatever. But we live in this world where information is easily and quickly accessible. Uh, you have corporations uh, like, you know, major publishers, whether it be uh, Penguin Books or Random House, you have major publishers, they're multi multi-million-dollar publishers that are going up against people who are just in their basements. And I, I really made this concerted effort to put out a book that sounded the way that I do lectures and even had the mistakes that I make when I do lectures in it. And this drove my copy editor crazy because I kept telling him like, no, you have to leave that run on sentence. No, that word needs to be misspelled. No, this comma is supposed to be improperly used. That sentence I,
2: I was me. wondering about all that, man.
1: <laughs> and I I did that on purpose because we do live in this world where things seem very sanitized and even... Uh, you know, a, a person will write a blog post and then some. they'll get called out on a misspelled word and then they'll go back and, and re-spell it. And in the future, everything, all of this stuff is going to look like it was perfect. And mm-hmm. that's really bothersome to me for some yeah. reason. It just sticks in my head because we are imperfect people and we make mistakes and we need to see those mistakes. And so that's part of why I put the book out the way I did.
2: So did you do – so you did purposeful mistakes?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. There are uh, words. I'm trying to think right off the bat. My one of my co- I had two people copy edit it, and it was we literally driving them crazy when I would say, <laughs> "No, I know that that I repeated that word there. Leave those repeats." Or there they would was, come.
2: There was one that important had like eight M's in it.
1: And in that instance, at the <laughs> end at the end of the page, I tell you that i've misspelled it on purpose
2: yes yes
1: so that the book is also an experiment so if you have it then you notice that it says like uh volume one or book one at the top so there's a second theoretical weirdo that comes out next year um and the whole first chapter is kind of dedicated to the experiment of this first book and the responses that people that i've gotten from putting out this book and and that's uh I can't really describe the experiment or what the experiment's doing, but I've already seen some results from it and it's super interesting. And it does have to do to a certain degree with some things I've already talked about. So there's hidden stuff in here already.
2: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's I mean, it's it was very interesting. And as I was reading it, I was like, is he meaning to spell, misspell these words? Is it is it are these actual mistakes? You know, because it intrigued me when I saw you post something on Twitter about it and you said that this was an experiment. So I, th- I well, think I thing- knew after after the important with eight M's, I was like, I think, <laughs> I think something, something more is going on here.
1: What's what's really funny is not only did my two copy editors go crazy when they were reading it, but um, I have other friends who are copy editors that weren't involved in the book who have the copy and they don't know that I was doing it on purpose. And they were like, holy shit, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, no, you talk to Dave, he already copyedited it. And they're like, why do he leave that in? I'm like, "Cause I told him to leave it in and their minds were just blowing that someone would write something and put it out being flawed. And again, that's concerning to me. Right. Like we right. should be able to accept mistakes. We should even be able to accept people's ideas if they contain s- simple mistakes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, there's when when you're dealing with, especially now, like which, like you just said, when you have people can just like put their books out, and they can just when we when we're in the self-publishing world now, whether it's Kindle or electronic copy or physical copy, either one, you know, you're any that I read any of those books, I'm always finding some kind of mistake. It well, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who it is.
1: The, the concept actually came to me because I collect copies of 1984 the way that other conspiracy theorists collect Catcher in the Rye, right? So I have.
2: Interesting.
1: <laughs> I have 30 or 40 copies of 1984. And, and the idea of putting out a book with purposeful mistakes in it uh, came from the fact that I was reading a, a copy of 1984 that came out in the late 90s. And I was about halfway through the book. And. Uh, there was a the, but it said there instead, someone at the publishing house. I mean, it's 1984. It's from a major publisher, and it was there instead of the. Right. And I was amazed at how much that pulled me out of the book. Huh. And then I thought to myself, this is super interesting. I've become accustomed to everything being perfect.
4: Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And this book that I love and collect and all of a sudden this one word you know 130 pages in pulled me out that significantly what does that say about my mental state and how i consider ideas and if someone speaks improperly do i have a tendency to listen to them less
2: yeah that's a good point john you know when as i was reading as i was reading this book or any other book that has like well not purposeful mistakes but just mistakes I will read something like that and nine times out of 10, really, I, I just kind of just like replace the word that right. like It's supposed to be and move on. It's either it's it like, I, I think I've got, I think myself as, as doing this and I've had to read a lot of self published material doing this show. <clears throat> you get to the point where it's like a lot of it does have these mistakes in it. And just like, you just move on. Right. I've, I've kind of yeah. I guess that I've kind of trained myself in the last now over eight years that I've done this, that it's just a matter of course. It just is what it is.
1: I think that that's really incredible. I think that's awesome for you to be able to do that, because I don't think that a lot of people can. And I don't think a lot of educated people can. I think that a lot of uh, yeah. so-called educated people uh, get to a misspelled word or or a weirdly placed comma. And then the whole book and all the ideas contained within it are
3: garbage. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Throw it across the room. Throw it in the fire. Yeah. 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 Well, on the other side of that, I'm kind of having some difficulties like in my own research because while it's great that uh, especially like occult topics are are actually being explored so much in academia now – There's things that I'm trying to get access to that as an independent researcher is just such a pain in the ass to get academic books, uh, get access to them. And then of course you're not going to be able to buy them because they're hundreds of dollars. And that's that kind of like academic writing that abstracts things and, you know, takes it further away from normal people also.
1: Yeah. um, I recently, I, I I'm in a pretty decent situation because my sister is a, She's a professor at the University of Michigan, and so Mm -hmm. she can she can do interlibrary loans between colleges. Um, But most people can't do that. Like some people like there's, you know, a certain book that I wanted and it's only available at the University of Indiana. And if you don't have access to the University of Indiana, that book is inaccessible to you.
2: Well, one of the things that we've noticed, John, is that there is the obviously there's an academic world and there's a popular world and so we had we had a, we had a guest on that um, covered up the name of a, of a certain person in their more popular book right but in their okay. aca- in their academic book it was very clear who this person was so but the thing is is that no one like the layman isn't gonna yes. have the
3: money to afford this $350 textbook. Right. It's just assumed that there's no way, you know, <laughs> yeah, they're going to find out, even though it's well-published.
1: Well, published. well and, and this goes back also with academia and higher learning, uh, as we recognize it, the fact that, you know, when I, I sometimes will talk about science as being kind of, and I, I'm not the only one, obviously, we, we all kind of talk about it in this manner. But like with science, high sciences being a, a new kind of priest caste system, because yeah. if, you know, I, I don't have access to, I don't do I don't think anybody really has the money to be able to afford all of the science journals that our whole world is being based on. Mm hmm. You know, there are all we're, we're taking, we're reading news snippets that are based on an abstract from an article. Where if you don't have, you know, the journal, the American Journal, the Journal of American Medical Association, which is, you know, whatever five hundred dollars a month, um, you're never going to read the actual report and the science behind it. You're going to have to read uh, some person's three paragraph description of the one paragraph abstract. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely,
1: and that leads right back to priests being the only one that can read the Bible. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. Not go- to mention the, the language and jargon issues and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I think that that was
1: another thing with theoretical weirdo that I wanted to do too was I wanted to take. So I have some really silly things in there, like there's a, there's a chapter called like Do ghosts wear underpants, and <laughs> and yeah. it, it's a it's a really silly chapter, but. What I hope that those things do is because I'm trying to make things accessible to people, which is if you see a ghost wearing clothes, like where did its clothes come from? Yeah. You know, if you very commonly people see Civil War soldiers or military men in full dress uniform, like there's a complication and a a uniqueness to military uniforms. Like who stamped and pressed the buttons that are on a Civil War ghost's jacket? Who, who put together the fringe along the sleeves of a civil warman's jacket? Who sewed the leather belt together that he's wearing? You know, does does the ghost have to think of all those things to make them? do, or do they have to be in your head for you to be able to see them? It sounds like a silly question. Does a go, do ghosts wear underpants? But the underlying question is where I really want people to explore the idea.
2: Yeah, it's like, do we make these things? Do we kind of conjure these things up ourselves, or do, or do we just like, or something else conjuring
3: what we expect to see? Right. Yeah. You know? I do we- think in that in that chapter, you're talking about whatever these things are. Perhaps they're influencing our minds, and that would probably be easier than influencing the electromagnetic physical world.
1: Yeah. To to. The the idea that they are using kind of default imagery that we have in our heads because if I have a – obviously, I've seen Civil War movies, so I have an image of a Civil War soldier in my head somewhere. And so all they have to do is trip, spark that image, and then I have that visualization without the need to manifest a full body and clothing out in the atmosphere. Uh, It's a lot less energy use. Uh, But the thing is, is if they trip an image of a Civil War soldier in your head, uh, you say that you're seeing a Civil War soldier. I say I'm seeing a Civil War soldier. We don't know we're seeing different images. So we just assume we're seeing the same one.
2: Yeah, because we have this generic idea of what a, a Civil War soldier is going to look like.
1: Exactly. or And, you know, the most commonly seen ghosts are these kind of, like I said, default settings where people will say, like, I saw a very wispy woman in white or I saw a shadow figure. Like, this is where you don't have, or the ghost, or the entity, or the spirit, or the creature, or whatever, it, it can't find a visualization for itself in your head, so it trips a default, which is a silhouette of a man, the silhouette of a woman, uh, a white woman in a gown. And as we create, this is the thing I find fascinating, as we create crazier and crazier monster movies and comic books, we have more and more mm-hmm. vivid representations and images in our heads, and we see a a... a, a uh, more and more crazy creatures in the world
3: yeah yeah like it, it has to use that that raw material and especially people so mediated as us now i mean that's just that that raw material is just really rich
1: sure and if i mean uh, this is where you get into the idea of artists having some involvement in in the, the phenomenon and what's going on because if a uh, Some weird creature entity wants to make itself known and wants to be seen. uh, Just, uh, you know, jump into the imagination of a comic book artist or a filmmaker. And they draw it down. They sketch it out. They put it on the big screen. Millions of people see it. And now you can jump into the world.
2: Mm -hmm. That's kind of similar to the egregore. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, Or come through in a heavy metal riff. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so you've you've got a little chapter in here about that i thought was pretty funny and actually a couple of chapters about demonologists or self-proclaimed demonologists and you kind of do this little thought process a little thought game where you talk about like it's probably a demonologist is not where you what you want to be called
1: <laughs> yeah um So words are super important to me. You wouldn't know that because there's so many mistakes in Theoretical Weirdo, but that's part of what's going on with the book. Um, But words are super important to me. And so when years ago, uh, as an example, when the show Ghost Hunters first came on the air, which I think was in 2003 or 2004, uh, I knew that Ghost is the etymology of ghost comes from geist, which means wind or breath. And I understood that. And, um, hunting doesn't necessarily mean killing it. It means to, uh, kind of walking quietly through the woods in, in pursuit. And, And so I was fine with that, but like I went backwards and looked at the first time anybody had ever used the word ghost hunter. Right. And so it, it mostly shows up in common usage around 1904, There was an article uh, by H. Addington Bruce called The Ghost Hunters, and it was about paranormal researchers. And so I was like, oh, okay, so that's that's kind of the provenance for this name. Well, when I got, you know, the first books by Ed and Lorraine Warren as a teenager and the word demonologist kept coming up over and over again, uh, I tracked it backwards. And I realized that the first real common usage of the word demonologist were witch killers It's what the Catholic Church called men who sought out people that were supposed to be cavorting with the devil and doing witchcraft, and they killed them. And those people were demonologists, and for hundreds of years, demonologist was a person who killed a person, an innocent person. Um, and so now you have this, you know, kind of rebranding of demonologist. It's it's etymologically correct, the study of demons, but it has a 300-year history of being associated with the worst closed-minded people in the entire world. And so I think in the book I say like even if you call yourself a demonologist, I'm not going to do that because it's a terrible thing to call yourself. You're like witchfinder general. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean it's and people saying, you know, I it, I again, I always try and make things a little bit because people say like, "Oh, but it had a meaning in the past, but that meaning doesn't mean anything now." But it does. Like words are important. So You know, when does that meaning tape When does that meaning go away? When does the 300 year history of the word demonologist go away? Did it go away in the 70s because somebody wrote a book and rebranded it? And so now we're not going to use we're not going to use 300 years of our own history. In essence, that's saying, like, um, if you look at the state of the world going on right now and and someone says, like, oh, I like uh, publicly funded roads and publicly funded schools, which are national social programs. There's a reason why you don't call yourself a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, right. Th- th- because that makes, et- that makes sense. <laughs> et- etymologically, it's correct, but it has a history to it and it's attached to a certain group of people. So you don't use that word. Yeah, it's
2: a little bit of a trigger, I would I would, I would have to say. <laughs> right. For, for sure. Oh, Paul.
1: <laughs> and so when I hear people saying, I'm a demonologist, I'm a demonologist, I'm a demonologist, I'm like... You are literally calling yourself the name of people who killed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. We don't really know the number of innocent women for, because they lived at the edge of town and owned property because they were outspoken because they didn't want to pay their taxes, like literally just murdered women.
3: Well,
2: in the next chapter, you mentioned something that, I I really do want to, I want to pick your brain about because, uh, and you mentioned the Warrens before and talking about like how there's literally in some paranormal investigators, demons are like literally everywhere.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's become a trend. And I really think that this really kind of starts with the Warrens, you know, that they are kind of the beginning of that. And it really comes from, a very like it. It's not even mainstream Catholicism. It's 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 like a traditionalist Catholicism. I know you said you met Malachi Martin, mm-hmm. and he was very much in that. You know the the the, the pre-Vatican II, anything after Vatican mm-hmm. II, they didn't recognize right. this kind of stuff. And and when you watch like the Conjuring movies and the whole Conjuring universe. I always feel like since, since at least like maybe the second Conjuring movie, I feel like I've just been like been getting like this um, prop, like kind of like this real kind of like traditionalist Catholic propaganda being force fed into me every time I watch those movies. Yeah, that's how that's how I feel. And so it, it, it just comes from a certain belief system, this whole idea that everything is literally demons, like t- like a good friend Timothy Renner says, everything is demons. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And like the Warrens themselves, I mean, there there's some there's
1: the, some the more, heavy pro- more, heavy problems there.
2: The more I look at them, the 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 like I used to think their stuff was pretty solid, but now the more I look at them, it's it's it, it starts kind of crumbling down.
1: Well, I think I think there's still a lot to be undone by the Warrens. Uh, one of the things that I will say is back. I think people of my age and perhaps just a slightly bit younger, maybe people into their thirties. Uh, we all kind of grew up reading the Warrens books because they were popular and they were out there. And so we thought that's kind of what paranormal stuff was about. And as you get older, you know, you come to realize, you know, the Warrens were a, a, an outgrowth of, of the satanic panic movement of the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had uh evangelical America, just going crazy with, you know, Satan is everywhere and music is going to send you to hell and there's backward masking in Led Zeppelin and <laughs> they practice they practice magic and it's demons and Aleister Crowley and, and uh, the Warrens are very much of that era and they were very scared of the things that they didn't understand. And so, you know, if there was a Native American burial ground Uh, That person was going to kill you. I mean, a lot of the stuff that they write is fairly racist, and it's very narrow-minded through the spectrum of heavily religious, especially, you know, European Catholic uh, belief systems, and that becomes problematic if you don't realize that that's that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's other aspects, too, which I don't think that people really understand, you know, like, um, so... I have no proof of this whatsoever, but I'll just put it out there because it rolls around in my brain forever. And if I'm wrong, someone can tell me, and I'm fine with being wrong. But uh, there's a, a Twilight Zone episode that almost everyone has seen, which is called Talking Tina, right? And the, you, the doll? The doll that talks, yeah. right. And yeah. Telly Savalis is in it, and he can't get rid of her. And then finally, the doll trips him uh, and he dies.
2: Yeah,
1: that's a classic. Yeah. Uh, that's a classic. Yeah. Um, The year that that came out is the year that Lorraine Warren discovers Annabelle. And Annabelle is the mother's name in that episode of The Twilight Zone. Uh
2: Uh-huh. Really?
1: Yeah. Really? Yeah. So that has always been like, oh, she's telling a Twilight Zone story. (laughs) (laughs) hmm Hmm. yeah i mean just simple things like that and i mean that that i don't even know how long i've known that and i it just never gets talked about but again you see you know uh the portrayals in popular media with the conjuring films and stuff and it just gets further and further away from even what the warrens wrote um and and you know the Warrens history is very weird, and there's a lot of strange stuff going on in the background and and they themselves had a very weird life. Uh, I talked to a couple of people about you know there was there's an idea in the paranormal community among certain people that the Warrens started researching haunted houses so that Ed could sell his paintings of houses hmm. You know, a lot of people don't know Ed was a painter and he used to paint the houses along the, the shoreline on the East Coast and there was no way to sell them. And so he would paint a house and then his wife would go up to the house and tell them their house was haunted. And so she felt the need for, to tell her husband to paint it because it's a haunted house. And then the person wants to buy the painting and then you sell the painting, but then the person thinks their house is haunted.
2: Weird. That's a, that's a, that's a racket right there. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> you, okay, well, my, my impression of the Warrants, kind of what I've come down to, is that I think Lorraine had a very true believer streak in her, that she believed a lot of this stuff that she was doing. Yes. I I, th- I think Ed, on the other hand, I think he was much more pragmatic and he was really into it for the money or for the fame or for whatever whatever kind of grift that he could get with he was just much more practical essentially yes. and he kind of supported her belief that this that there was stuff really going on and there's there's a couple of things that you know like the i i, I enjoyed the first conjuring movie the second one i just couldn't get past the fact that they were even involved with infield yeah it's crazy and in, you know, like apparently what it really was was that
1: he as was as was sent home from there.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah it he, was like he showed Lyon, up and they sent him away. yeah, like Guy Lion Playfair told him to leave right that, as I understand it and and I guess Morris Green was the other guy. and those were the two guys that you know wrote the book. and like you know guy Lion Playfair, as I understand it, the book is very detailed. It's not sensationalist at all. A lot of people that have read it has said that it's boring, Mm -hmm. but that says a lot for it, that it's not, you know, oh, it's a a werewolf, you know? (laughs) But there was other things too, like one of the biggest cases for me, and, you know, I've met John Zaffis a couple of times. I had him on the show a long Mm -hmm. time ago.
1: I've known John for a long time.
2: You know, and I believe that John believes that there was stuff going on. He had some he he maintains that he had an experience in that house, the one that was the funeral home in Connecticut. Yeah. And but, you know, there's the reports that like the guy that ghost wrote that book uh, for the the haunting in Connecticut that Ed told that, like, he couldn't get a, a, a story straight from Carmen Reed and the family. Right. Like they all had different stories and Ed actually, he's, he said that Ed actually told him the family's crazy. Just do your best.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that comes up a lot of times in personal notes and in conversations, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that Lorraine, I think that Lorraine probably to a very large degree was psychic at one time or throughout her life and had a very deep belief in all of this stuff. Um, I don't think that Ed was as into it as her, but I do think that it was I I don't think, I know that it was colored by their religion. And that should give us all pause whenever we read stuff.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you this, John, too, about um, hoaxing in and of itself in a situation. Like, if someone is hoaxing something that that can almost kind of spring board activity because it was said in infield poltergeist case that the girls have admitted that they hoaxed certain things, but they did it in order to kind of prime the pump.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't have any difficulty. I have difficulty with people hoaxing stuff for sure. Right. Um, but I also recognize that if it's done in a, I think that hoaxing, like anything in our lives, and I'm, I'm just thinking up loud right now, so you're, you're going to get it however it comes out. I think that hoaxing, like anything else, can be a ritual.
3: Absolutely. And,
1: and I think that when it's done with ill intent, I think that when it's done to make somebody money or they're just trying to fool you, I think that that's the hoaxing I get mad at because it falls flat and it doesn't generate anything worthy. I think that when uh, Gray Barker would make strange telephone calls to John Keel uh, because he thought it was funny and he knew that it would drive Keel crazy, <laughs> I, I think that eventually Keel started getting weird phone calls that weren't from Gray Barker.
3: Yeah,
1: right. And I, I, I think that that there is a difference. I do think that. Hoaxing and tricking people and doing something strange can spark a phenomenon because it opens up people's minds to an experience. Um, but, you know, there's obviously a, a different type of trickery that goes on for a television show or movie or documentary or whatever like that. That's something that I just couldn't stand.
2: Well, it, it makes me wonder in a case like Haunting in Connecticut um just to take that case for example and and John I mean I I tend to believe him that he had an experience in that house I do too is is it a is there a possibility that okay you know that there is a certain amount of that there is a mass hysteria element to this but everybody having so much fear because, you know, you hear the story that they all had to sleep in one room, they were so right. afraid, all this kind of stuff, and then that collected energy kind of just manifests, does manifest something horrible and horrific, because that's what it, like we talked about the Civil War soldier,
1: that's what it wants to, that's what it thinks we want to see. Yeah, absolutely. I did um an episode of a television, I did a t- uh, episode of a show called Kindred Spirits with Amy Bruni and Adam Berry. Wow. And we were at this place that's called Belvoir, right, Belvoir, Rine, winery. Sorry about that. Uh, in Missouri. And, uh, there was something in this old building and I don't know what it was. There was a weird energy and I knew it cause I had been there a few times, but it had gotten weirder and darker. And I never really thought that there was anything bad in this place all of the times that I had been there before it didn't seem bad. But then all of a sudden these reports were coming in that something was bad there. Well, they called me in because they couldn't figure it out either. And I think it's actually really good television because (laughs) at one point I say to them, this thing that's in here is just being what we want it to be. Mm -hmm. So, All of these groups that kept hearing there were bad things in there kept going into this place and saying, why are you bad? Why are you evil? Uh, How come you're mad? How come you push? How come you scratch? And as this thing listened to all those voices, it thought, I must be evil. I must be bad. I must be scratching. I must be pushing. And that's how it acted. And so I started talking about, on that episode, Aggregors. And how we feed into building something in a location. And what was really crazy when we were actually filming, uh, I was inside the building with Adam and we were talking about Amy and we did a, a, an EVP session and the voice on our recorder was Amy's voice. And when I heard that, I took I took Adam and I went outside and I brought Amy in and we started talking about Adam and it switched to Adam's voice. So it really was giving us like moment to moment the things that we were thinking about and talking about because it didn't know what it was. It had been created and it was just trying to fulfill a need. This became problematic when uh, Chip Coffee came in, who's a Catholic and immediately started talking about demons (laughs) <laughs> and then the whole place went like batshit bonkers. And I was like, you got to get out of this place because I don't want to deal with something that thinks it's a demon right now. Um, but I think it's the first time on any television show where we've actually discussed aggregores on like a travel channel show.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's, it, that is an interesting and hard concept to get your mind around. We had uh, Mark Stavish on mm-hmm. about, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And uh, that was probably one of the most interesting books that I've ever read. But just I, I really had to have him explain what it was, and um, it's like a tulpa, but on steroids. Right. And and th- that seems very familiar to me, like um, what you're talking about, like the Philip experiment. That's a uh-huh. very, you know, that's like the classic case sure,
4: where they gave,
2: I- where they created this character and they gave it a certain amount of personality, and then all of a sudden people started to get communications from philip
1: yeah absolutely i think that the majority of haunted houses are haunted by us i mean you walk past an old house in your neighborhood and you think it's scary but you're not the only kid doing it every kid has done it for 20 years and eventually that house becomes haunted
2: (laughs) (laughs) i actually uh (laughs) somewhat off topic but i did enjoy the chapter where you um where you talked about being in a in a particularly haunted house. I believe it was. Um... Oh, man. But you, you were in a house like weird things started happening and it turned out to be the way that you write it. You think that it's that it's a horrible ghost, but it turns out to be something completely different.
1: Oh, uh, the demon of judgment. The demon of judgment. Yes. yes. Yeah, because we have difficulty, at least I do. I have difficulty sometimes being at a restaurant or a bar and discerning the motivations of a human being that's sitting across from me, someone that I can look at, hear, see their body posture, hear the inflection, tonality, and timbre of their voice, and I still don't really know what their motivations are. And yet ghost hunters walk into locations to deal with ethereal spirits that they can't really hear, they can't really see, they can't touch at all, and they immediately know and discern everything that that spirit is trying to do. It just seems so ridiculous to me. Especially placing concepts like good and bad on it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you and I, we're all fine right now with where we're at, because if you wanted to, you could hang up and leave right now. But if you were trapped in a place that you couldn't leave for 10 years or 50 or 100 years, you might become frustrated. You might become lonely and sad. You might finally gather up enough energy to manifest a hand and reach out to touch someone. And and because you don't have a hand anymore, just the manifestation of a hand, you might snag their hair or accidentally scratch them. And then that person turns around and goes, something in here just attacked me. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know the motivation, right?
2: Yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't know that. That's a, that's a very good point. But, but also too, like, you know, when these investigators go in and do these things, like, like, they 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 automatically assume what they're dealing with is the, the des, a deceased person. Right. <laughs> when it could be a myriad of things. I mean, we could mm-hmm. be dealing, like I've said many times before on the show, we could be dealing with time. We could be dealing with some kind of time phenomenon that we don't really understand.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I hear ghost hunters all the time will say things like, treat ghosts the way that you would treat a human. And I understand that idea. I understand that concept. But the reality is, they're not. Uh, mm-hmm. They they might well have been human at one time, what we consider human now. But whatever they are, if they're there, they're not human anymore. Uh, they can walk through walls, they're invisible, they might be able to speak using manipulating energy in a completely different way, seeing in a completely different way because they don't have biological bodies. And so to treat them as a human uh, is fine because you can show a certain amount of respect. But at the same time, we tend to treat other humans pretty badly.
2: Yes,
3: yes we do. Hmm. Yes
2: we do.
3: Well, this makes me think how much of occultism since the 19th century really came out of spiritualism first and if you know really occultism centers around changing consciousness and manifesting things with your mind through ritual that I guess is the original playground for doing these things if it is something like what you're talking about whereas it has a lot more to do with our influence on the environment
1: yeah I so one of the I actually talk about it in the book because I have some old new lessons for paranormal researchers in the book. But one of the things that I do if I have to do a group session in a haunted place for a convention or a conference or something like that, usually everybody's walking around with their EMF meters and all of their and gadgets and trying to talk to a ghost. And what I do is I, I do this thing that's called the circle method, which is very kind of spiritualist uh, seance-y, which is I make everyone sit down quietly, put all their equipment away. We Everyone holds hands. And then let's say there's six people there. Uh, I'll be the start and I'll ask a question, something like, can you tell me what you see? And then the person next to me, I'll squeeze their hand. And that person next to me asks the exact same question and then they squeeze the hand next to the person and all six people ask the same question. And the reason that a lot of times it works very well is because our minds aren't cluttered thinking about what we want to ask. Everyone is waiting to ask that question that they've just heard four times. They're waiting to say it. Everyone. And then you get a response and it's an answer to a question. Imagine that we collectively used our minds to press mm-hmm. into that other world. You know, if you're yeah. doing a normal EVP session, you got nine people in a room, everybody's thinking of what question they're going to ask. It must be a cacophony of, of, of questions on the other side.
3: So in, in searching for something external, people can find their, their own power. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think I, t- I talk about it in the book, which is if if ghosts and spirits or entities, if they're not manifesting outside of us in the environment, and I think that some probably do, but if they're not, if there are some that are using our brains and our minds and our consciousness to contact with us, um, I find that much more intimate, much more personal, and mm-hmm. it it connects me much, you know, in a much deeper manner. To, to the unknown world because I'm a active part of their communication with me. I'm not just an observer to them and they are somewhere else. They're, right. they're part of their, they become part of me in that moment.
3: And these aren't, re- this phenomenon isn't regulated to having to die. Uh, right. that's a, it's a, big explosion of energy that I could see how could, it could create manifestations, but we all experience really intangible things with, other living people with things that people who are still alive have left places. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not regulated to just things that have died.
1: I've, I've told people for decades, and I'm, I'm sure there's psychologists out there that will explain it better to me and explain to me how the process works. But I, w- I, I really don't think that you need to get into physics and quantum mechanics to explain a lot of stuff. Some of this stuff is just weird and it just yeah. works.
4: What's the easiest choice you can make?
1: weirdly and one of the things that i've always talked about is i can't tell you how many times throughout my life i've opened the door to a bar or a restaurant or someone's house and the moment i've opened it up i have thought this place sucks for no good reason (laughs) (laughs) yes that's happened to me before and it's not bad energy yeah it's not even an internalized dialogue it's not even how i talk to myself in my head i just know it I know this place is bad. I've talked – I've walked up to people at conventions or they've walked toward me and I've thought, uh-oh, this is going to be a problem. And no – for mm-hmm. no reason. And I think that that's – we we exist and we interact with a much larger world than, than the senses.
2: Yes, absolutely we do. Absolutely we do. There's a couple of things that you talk about in here about uh, – in the book about – some of the paranormal research, and these kind of go together. And uh, so a section on five myths of paranormal research, what those are, and then kind of the five reasons paranormal research is not taken seriously.
1: Yes. Um, you want to go through them, and I'll just give you a play-by-play? Do you have the book in front of you? Yeah, I've got them. I've got All them right. right here. Let's go through them.
2: <laughs> Page okay. 34 of
3: five myths. Yeah, due to television movies.
1: Yeah. So five myths that people uh, think about paranormal investigation due to movies and television. All right, what's number one? Demons are everywhere. Yeah, we've covered that. We've covered that one. People people think that they are everywhere. Um, And they they really, for as much, again, I don't know what a demon is. I don't know what a ghost is. So for there to be demons all over the place, I mean, that's – That's what's problematic, too, is these in the paranormal community, we should be not making declarative, definitive statements. Uh, I know that people hate that, but we are a speculative and theoretical uh, community. And for people to say that is a demon, that is a ghost, that is an apparition that I mean, making that is this that leads you down a a very long and dark path. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, though, uh, working for television. Uh, they love demons, and yes, they they, do. they cannot get enough of them. They want them at every twist and turn, uh, and they will pigeonhole them in any way they can.
3: What kind of, what kind of advertisers are interested in demons, do you think?
1: <laughs> uh, demons get a lot. Uh, I mean, it draws viewers in. People like yeah. horror movies. And so they like watching what seems to be a horror movie on television. I can tell you as a guy who's done this 30 years and have done not only paranormal conventions but done horror movie conventions. I sat next to this a absolutely f- true, funny story. I sat next to uh, Eileen Dietz who played Pazuzu in the original exorcist film at a horror movie oh, convention. Wow. And so I've seen an actual exorcism, right? So Her and I were talking all weekend about real exorcisms and the exorcist and her playing Pazuzu and what demons might be. And we were having these very deep, genuine, silly conversation and people would come up and they would get photos of her face as Pazuzu signed by her and their exorcist posters and stuff like that. And throughout the weekend, she noticed that like nobody was really talking to me. And so she started on Saturday going, you know, this guy and pointing at me, she goes, this guy next to me. Uh, is a real ghost hunter and actually has seen an exorcism. You should talk to him about it. And people were actually scared and didn't want to talk to me about it. Mm. They like it when it's fake. They like it when it's portrayed as a horror movie. But when you start to actually want to have a conversation about things like this, it makes people very nervous.
3: Well, maybe that fictionalization helps them – deal with what might be the reality or helps them process it. It comforts them for sure.
2: So the next one is EVP is a relatively new process.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, and I want ahead. to point out on
2: all these lists that you count down instead of up. I just
1: want to point <laughs> that out.
2: I, I think that that was meant to. Uh
1: Everything has a purpose. <laughs> no doubt. Um, so yeah, I mean, You know, you would think and it's because of the popularization of ghost hunting shows and reality shows where everybody thinks that, you know, you you started uh, doing EVP sessions, probably people started doing it in the 90s. And that's just not true. You know, ghostly voices have people have attempted to record ghost voices as long as it's been able to be recorded, Um, even to the you know, we call it electronic voice phenomena only because we're using electronic instruments. Uh, But, you know, people tried to do it on wax cylinders and people were doing it back in the 30s and 40s with uh, machines that actually etched records and the original reel-to-reel tapes. And so this idea that it's only something that's been going on for 25 years or 30 years is just a mistake. It's been going on for almost a century now. And it has developed and changed. But that draws even more questions to it because – If you are trying to capture a ghost voice on an analog recorder and you're trying to capture a ghost voice on a digital recorder and you capture a ghost voice on both of those things at the same time, you've just captured two different phenomena because an analog recorder and a digital recorder record in very different ways. And so, you know, you've just captured a voice that can transfer itself onto ferromagnetic tape, and you've just recorded a voice that can somehow change air pressure, because that's how digital recorders record sound.
2: Okay, so uh, three, probably my favorite one, screaming at a ghost is a great way to get a response. (laughs)
1: This, again, is from televisions and movies. People think that they need to be loud. They need to scream into the void to get these entities <laughs> to hear them. As if the ghost that is standing in front of you is far away from you because it exists in a different dimension. So you need to be loud and you need to be assertive. Uh, I think later and, and, Bob, and, and wear as many tap-out t-shirts as possible. And wear as many tap-out t-shirts as possible. Uh, Axe
3: body spray doesn't hurt either. You know, if anything,
1: <laughs> if anything, when we were talking about, uh, you know, creating a haunted house, if if a ghost or an entity or a spear, whatever you want to call it, if it can be left behind because of a, a human born energy, uh, then the possibility exists for that human born energy to leave parts of it behind while you're still alive. So, if you go into a room if you know if you if you have a ghost hunting team that goes into a room on Sunday at an institution or a prison and they're kicking the walls and punching the walls and screaming at the ghost to come and talk to them, and then you go in there on Monday and it seems like someone in that room wants to fight you, it might not be the ghost, it might be the people who were there yesterday
2: yeah mm-hmm. uh, that's a good point that's a really that's a really good point. I did when you have a, like, a whole bunch of people just going in there and just doing the same thing because they
1: watched a particular television show. Well, and I even talk about in the, in the book, there's a whole nother chapter. But I talk about the fact, and this kind of relates to Screaming at Ghosts, which is the most common form of spirit communication worldwide, historically, cross-culturally, is prayer. And prayer is silent. You speak in your mind – knowing that your thoughts are being divined by the spirit world. And so to think that a ghost can only answer your question when you mouth the words, I I think is a, a, a meandering path.
2: Yes. Yes. So number two, psychics mediums are needed to investigate.
1: Yeah, that came up with television. Um, it's funny because one of the very first kind of paranormal reality shows is the ghost episode of in search of with Hans Holzer Uh, and Holzer brings a psychic with him and they do an EVP session. It looks exactly like an episode of ghost hunters from 25 years later. Um, But yeah, this idea that you need to have a psychic walking around the house to give you information. uh, That's just not, needed to do paranormal investigation as a matter of fact i've i've often made the case that if i have a psychic before i can bring the psychic into the into the location i have to investigate the psychic because i'm investigating paranormal phenomenon what they're doing is paranormal so i have to investigate the psychic first before the psychic can investigate the location
2: yeah you got to know if they're legit if they are actually legit or not
1: yeah and i've met i I I won't burn the number too high, but in 30 some odd years of doing this, I've probably met a thousand people who have said that they were psychic, probably over that, but I'm going to shoot low and say a thousand. And I will tell you in all honesty, again, I don't have any secrets out of that thousand. I've probably met six people who can do something repeatably and on, on cue.
2: Right. And as you you do have a whole chapter in here about like how, e- is e- how easy it is to fake any of that stuff.
1: Yes. Yes.
2: I mean, a, lo- a lot of it is just like goes back to just like mesmerism and all that,
1: well, all that and kind even, of practice. Even, you know, when I started out doing all this stuff and I've talked about this in, in before in di- different interviews, but when I really wanted to understand how I could be fooled, one of the first things I did was I became a magician. Like I joined the International Brotherhood of Magicians and the Society for American Magicians and I started practicing magic and I started attending lectures and conferences of magicians because and mentalists because I wanted to know how I could be tricked. And it's been an invaluable resource to know how I can be tricked.
2: Right. Exactly. A lot of people don't understand that. One of my favorite presentations at any conference was um are you familiar with Aaron Houdini? I am. Are you really so he um he did a whole thing of just like how as a magician having that knowledge is, is like is like key because then you can get away with a whole bunch of stuff. And really a lot of it is just distraction. Well just distracting and, people, distracting people's attention.
1: And again, uh see if I so I don't have any secrets, so this is why I'm a terrible magician, right? So Uh, I was at a conference once, this is 10 years ago with Aaron, uh, he was there and he was going to be doing a magic act. And, uh, I was standing outside smoking and he said, Hey, Tenny, he's like, you're a magician, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you know, you belong to the societies and stuff. And I'm like, yep. And he's like, okay, me too. He goes, what kind of cigarettes do you smoke? And I go Winston lights. And he goes, will you be my, uh, my gaff in the crowd? And I was like, sure. So we went across the street, we bought a pack of cigarettes uh, he took it up. He did his setup. We had a crowd full of people. We threw the bean ball around until I got it. I stood up. I was picked randomly out of the crowd. And somehow or another, he had a pack of my cigarettes hidden under a box to the <laughs> amazement of everyone. And it was as simple as just saying, you're going to be the guy. Right. Sounds like wrestling. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, so the final one. Oh, magicians would be mad run. at
1: me for doing that on this <laughs>
2: giving it away uh investigation happens at night
1: yeah uh i think the going response that people on tv now say is that uh it's quieter so it's better uh to hear the subtle sounds of a location uh, that's why they investigate at night. That's kind of when if you ask people who are working on television shows, they'll tell you there's less distraction. The neighbor's dog isn't barking. There's not as many cars driving around. There's not a lot of airplanes flying overhead. And that's all very practical and understandable. Uh, the problem is, is that there's also not a lot of sound and it's dark. And in the situation when you don't have a lot of sound frame of reference and you don't have a lot of light for visual references, your brain starts to manifest imagery and sounds. Um, And so it becomes problematic to investigate at night. I love investigating during the day. Uh, Penhurst Asylum that I've investigated a number of times is only active to me every time I've investigated there during the day. And I've always chalked that up because – at night, everyone that was ever at Penhurst was told to keep quiet. And so when I walk in there and start saying at three o'clock in the morning, talk to me, talk to me, if there's a spirit that holds a memory of Pennhurst, they knew that if they talked, they were going to be punished. But if you go there at noon and you walk around in the cafeteria, you get amazing EVPs and, and experiences because that's when it was active and that's when people were allowed to communicate.
2: Yeah. So it makes more sense. It's just that we have this kind of like tradition, I guess, television and film that we think it's like, oh, the the haunting time is at night. And and 3 a.m., you know, the adverse.
1: The anti-Jesus hour.
3: Right. The (laughs) anti-Jesus hour. Yes. You know where I was going there. (laughs) Well, and then there's just the whole idea of uh, people being more open because the night, the night does change our psyche. Um, So it it might make people more receptive, but as far as actually, you know, doing something in an objective investigative way, that's not probably the environment that you want. Well, I
1: think you're absolutely right because there is – that's a a, a much deeper point, and I think you're absolutely right. I think that – so for me, when I started researching and I kept hearing about like 3 a.m. and 3.15 and – uh, these are the kind of witching hours and demon hours and ghost hours. And this is when spirits haunt and it was coming up all across different folklore and different stories. And, and the first thing I, I really was interested in is what is my brain doing then? And so if you can, any of your listeners, you can look up, like if you look up the circadian rhythm of the brain, uh, about two 30 is when the melatonin in your brain drops for the day mm-hmm. and it starts to put you into a heavy REM sleep. Well, if you're awake, that melatonin drop still happens. And so your mind is expanded starting around 2.30 and it peaks around 4 o'clock. So between 2.30 and 4 o'clock, 3 o'clock being a major hour, It's most if you go to sleep at 9 or 10 o'clock, most people wake up out of a nightmare at 3 o'clock because that's when the melatonin is really starting to hit. Um, And so if you're awake in that experience, you might be experiencing a much wider reality than you would experience during the day. What's problematic is that on TV, almost no one is investigating at three o'clock. They usually contractually only investigate until midnight or one o'clock. And then they just change the time code down at the bottom of the screen to say three or four or five o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, You're you're giving away all the secrets. tonight. My (laughs) my illusions are ruined.
2: (laughs) You mean they – I can't believe they would do something like that.
1: (laughs) We – when I did Ghost Stalkers back in 2014, we had massive arguments with the network because I told them I was going to – Chad and I, we were going to investigate from 9 to 9, from 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. And we had massive arguments about us actually investigating for 12 hours because they had never had anyone investigate for that long at night. And – And it was a big concern to them. What are we going to do with all that footage? We don't need all that footage. We don't need you to do that. You only really have to be there until one or two. Uh, And I argued and won for better or for worse. And it it was fine. But I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't going to just have them change that time code at the bottom.
2: That show was so refreshing, though, too. But because you know I, I, I was so bored with the regular kind of show, and you, the way you guys did that was just like – it was simple, but it was um, –
1: It could have been – I mean, obviously, whatever. It could have been so much better. There was stuff that was cut out because the network just didn't understand it. To give you as an example, we were driving to a location where people were seeing a weird apparition, and uh, I was talking about uh, why there. it seemed to be that there were certain places where communication – was easy uh, in regards to talking to the other world or another world. And as right as we were having that conversation, which was being filmed, uh, we drove past this giant military radar installation. And I stopped and got out and looked it up on on the computer. And it was this place in Georgia, I think, which is a giant land-based uh, SETI telescope and i was like holy crap this is a mile away from this place where people easily communicate with spirits and we have a giant satellite that's trying to talk to aliens like a mile away and we had this great conversation about extraterrestrial intelligences and ghosts and of course it all hits the cutting room floor because the network's like why are you talking about aliens this is a ghost (laughs) show it's a ghost show you talk to ghosts
2: It was just, well, the way that you guys did it, I mean, it was just, it was just you guys with just one of you would go in and you would have like just a camera. That was a big problem too. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that it was, but it was just, it was just, it it made it just more, much more real than just like, Oh, you're, you're a couple of guys go in and they are like, they're supposed to be the only ones in there, but you know, you got to, cameraman and a sound guy and probably a couple other people you know so yeah. it was just it was just so much different than that
1: my biggest um, my biggest cut that got out of that show that made me the maddest was uh someone in one of the locations had seen uh, uh, an image that looked like a, a goat man and yeah and yeah. Chad was like a goat man, like, what the hell is a goat man? And so later when they were editing the episode together, they sent me an email and they said, could you send us a voiceover kind of explaining the mythology of goat men throughout history? And so, <laughs> I, so I wrote this, I wrote like a paragraph and it was fairly comprehensive m- mythology of goat men and Muhammad, Bahamut, like all that thing, you know, mm-hmm. and I just went down that road and uh, it was so funny because. The paragraph kind of ended with, but in most uh, in modern society, the goat man has been relegated to the demon. And when the episode came out, that entire paragraph was gone, and it's a single sentence that they cut together out of that paragraph, and it's me saying, traditionally, the goat man is thought of as a demon. Oh gosh! And everything else was gone. Oh man! That that made me. I'm slightly upset <laughs> yeah it's just
2: they're always they're always editing for time and all this guy you did though at one point that there, there was a discussion I do remember a discussion about a goat man or something and you said that well this could manifest itself in anything that it wants to be manifest or something like that you said yeah and I was watching that and I was like yes somebody yeah. finally gets to say that on t- on television <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, we made little breakthroughs here and there. Ghost Stalkers, I think, is still the only show, the very last episode, the sixth episode. Chad and I have a three minute conversation about the Society for Psychical Research. And we actually so, show the logo on screen, and we show William James and uh, Edmund Gurney, and I think Henry, uh, I think we show the Sedgwicks. Uh, and I think we're the only show that has still ever talked about the Society for Psychical Research.
2: I think this is a good place to talk about this, but Hellier, I mean, you're very much involved with this. I mean, we, we had Greg on, you know, we've talked to um, Alan Greenfield several times now Uh and I haven't had the chance to talk to you about it. Like I said before, the last time we had you on, I hadn't even watched it, but I did get a chance to watch the whole series. I absolutely loved it. Um, Do you think that that's going to change some things in the paranormal media? Do you think it's going to
1: get some more recognition than it already has? I don't know. It's hard. So I think what's interesting for me is, so like my introduction to Hellier is literally shown on camera, which is in the first season, I was at home watching television, smoking cigarettes, and I got a phone call at around 3.30 in the morning, and they wanted to talk to me about synchronicity and goblins and weird stuff. And that phone call is in the first season. And that was, that was when I found out what they were doing. I'd had no idea what was going on. Um, and, you know, I told them, uh, well, it's in Hallier itself, but I told them that you can go down as many roads as you want to, but those roads lead to diverse and sometimes very dark places. And, (laughs) And if you look at the researchers of the past, uh, you can see those dark places. You know, John Keel, a lot of people don't realize, was, you know, died pretty much broke and, you know, in a fairly hoarding situation. Um, You know, Gray Barker dies broke and lonely and sad, uh, being known as a hoaxer and a trickster and nothing he can say can be trusted. And, uh, you know, Morris K. Jessup. Uh, allegedly commits suicide you know goes to florida and, and kills himself like this this community has had its share of people who have tried to follow the threads and if you want to follow them they will lead you places uh but you will not control you can go to an edge and you can fall over it very quickly uh and so that was my concern when i heard them talking and the way they were talking the conversation that you see in hellier the first season is only a few minutes long but we probably talked for an hour an hour and a half um and then i told them if you're going to continue down this road i've i've been to that edge before i've been almost completely insane and had to pull myself back a few times so if you need me i will be here for you because you're my friends but this is not my case and not my investigation. Like, you have to do what you think you need to do. And uh, in the second season of Hellier, I was talking to Connor, because Connor, I think, was in a a weird place working with the numbers. And uh, I had talked to him three or four times, just direct messaging through Twitter. And he called me and said, can I talk to you about the numbers? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, we're on our way to Detroit. And the that we rented a hotel room and filmed what you see in the second season of Hellier. Yeah,
2: that's the um, very the very last scene I think, right at the end of the the, right. very, the last episode. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Where I talk to them about I think that what they are doing is a very old process, but I think they're doing it in a new way, and I think that trying to do it in an old way is not what it wants. I think it, I think, I, I think I actually say in Hellier, it wants new magic. Yeah. And I think that that's, well, I, I think that's a, what Hellier has succeeded in doing to a certain extent. The. I mean, it's become,
2: yeah, it's become very much like a ritual in and of itself. Yes. I mean, I, I, I can, I can say that like, after, you know, I watched it, and I kept telling Serafiel, I'm like, this is like a lot of this is everything that we had been talking about, like stuff like Rebirth of Pan and uh, digging into the uh, the occult kind of Thelema stuff that we've been talking about, too.
4: Synchronicity, uh, we,
2: synchronicity as well. All that was everything that we've been talking about and, every you know, like my own life kind of was taking a synchronistic weird, synchronistic turn in 2019. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, it was like a cap of when I watched it, like, okay, this is, this is just too weird. So I think for a lot of people, you know, they, they feel, they really feel that that's like, it's almost like a magical ritual in and of itself.
1: Well, I think, yes. And I think that it, the phenomena or whatever you want to call it, the experience of reality that we seem to be having I think it finds a a myriad of ways to express itself and we don't readily know them quickly. So like, um, what's a good example? I think the most downloaded song in the past like 10 years is a Spanish dance song. Uh, and it's all about falling in love and losing your love. But what's interesting to me is there's an entire portion of the song that says, like, I want you to write your name on the walls in the cave and I want to get lost in your maze. And I, when I realized what that song was talking about, it was talking about an initiatory process. And this came out, you know, years before Hellier. And I was like, has this thing been trying to manifest Like, is it trying to find a way out? Is it trying to get people to think about it in more ways than just uh, magic? And so I I even went back and I looked into the past. Uh, How would it have manifested before? If you look at the rise of, uh, you know, magic systems and ritual magic back in the turn of the century, what was happening back then? And all of a sudden you run into all these books about pan you run into arthur mawkins the great god pan and you you run into these stories of, of chambers is the yellow king and huh. and and you have these stories about this giant magical creature that if you see it you'll go insane and it gets you lost in mazes upon mazes and this initiatory process and i was like holy shit like it, it seems to pop up in every field literature music dance film and it tries to express itself in different ways the most watched film on netflix is bird box which is about a creature that if you see it you go insane which is the story that arthur malkin told in the great god pan
2: wow interesting that you mentioned the yellow king because we the last episode we talked about that (laughs) (laughs) that came up in there, so there's there's another
1: synchronicity. There's a little sync for you. Yeah. I've been, I've, I have been for, whenever I get bored, I go back to the Yellow King and try and figure it out.
2: That's one I'm going to have to read, because it comes, it does come up a lot.
1: I think there's something there, and when I read it, my brain understands it, and I think that there's something in there that I can find. I know that that's part of its legend and lore, but I'm one of those people, so I will turn
2: to more like contemporary kind of political stuff. Um, I know that there's been obviously there's been a lot of turmoil lately. Um, and it's kind of started to kind of hit the the uh, the paranormal community yes, as 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 well. And I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this, John, because I know you've been pretty active on Twitter and and calling some people out. And, you know, I have noticed that there's there's a real I I hesitate to say right wing, but more, I guess, conservative leaning in the paranormal field. I kind of wonder why. I guess <laughs> I mean, there's Our has got some insight on this too, but
1: I mean, there's a you know the paranormal community, a great to a great extent, is very european biased, and it carries along with it all of the horribleness that that brings. I mean, You know, whether it be the writers and the occultists of the eras in the 1900s that carried along some pretty racist viewpoints, Uh, whether it be the idea that, you know, only white Europeans could be the dominant uh, magicians. Uh, And and everybody else was doing horrible, you know, savage magic that didn't really need anything. It needed to be broke down and stylized and ritualized and and made into something palatable to actually work. Uh, That carries over into the paranormal community, carries over into the UFO community. I mean, ancient aliens is about as racist as you can get. you know, saying that because white Europeans can't build the pyramids now, there's absolutely no way that Egyptians could have 2,000 years ago unless they had help from aliens is a pretty racist comment. And that just shows you, I mean, it's embedded in people. And I, I think very often, you know, I hear people say, well, why aren't, why aren't there more uh, black ufologists or, or black paranormalists? And the reality is, is part of me growing up as a white middle-class kid is that I had the free time to read books and not worry about stuff. I think that's part of it, but, there- but you know, the, the other thing is too, is there's a huge religious community behind it as well. There's a lot of people who seek the paranormal because they are uncomfortable with the prospects of life and death and they find comfort in it. And I understand that, but to find comfort in it, uh, Usually you have to have a very heavy religious belief system, and if you have a heavy religious religious belief system, you've probably carried along with it some of the horribleness that that carries along with it, especially if it's Judeo-Christian. The, the thinking that you're right, um, the thinking that you have a right to something, uh, that is very problematic as well. I, I'm most, I'm most upset because I guess I grew up trying to always be better and think more clearly and think more openly and more accepting. And I have watched over the past few months, people in this community and who do not want to think more openly. They don't want to have better ideas. They don't want to construct larger ideas. They want to continue to think that ghosts are ghosts. They want to continue to think that fairies are elves and fairies are are fairies and elves that uh aliens are aliens and they want to disregard i had a tweet today that said it's amazing to me how many paranormalists are afraid to stand up and say something like black lives matter but they have absolutely no fear in approaching a stranger in their house and saying you have a demon in your house or a ghost was murdered in your attic to say these incredibly what sounds seemingly insane phrases to someone's face that you've never met before with no evidential proof that it's actually real. But when it comes to a real topic, all of a sudden now you're afraid to speak out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think like it's, it's, it's weird because I feel like in some ways and I've gotten a little more I think on the political side or talking about more like the can, kind of conspiracy stuff or more talking about some of the historical stuff mm-hmm. on this show and not being afraid to tackle some of that. But there's but there's a there was a big thing around about 2017 there was a kind of like this shift for a lot of paranormal podcasts, it seemed to me at least for my own where it was like we got so exhausted by everything that was going on politically that we didn't want to really want to talk about it anymore. So there's this idea that like these these paranormal podcasts are like an escape for a lot of people from what is going on outside or right. outside of the paranormal uh, the world. And and that's and and that's fine. But I think at a certain point does it become you know where you just can't say okay we can't avoid this we can't truly avoid this anymore
4: right you know like it's
2: like what's the fine line between providing that escapism of ghosts and aliens and all this kind of weird stuff that we talk about and all but at at the same time facing like what is happening we weren't some really socially tumultuous times right now, probably probably getting yeah. to the point where it's going to be even worse than the sixties, as far as that's concerned. And so it's like, do we, you know, it's like, like is not facing it and just providing an escape the right way or is, or is trying to find like trying to find some kind of middle
1: ground? Well, I mean, escapism is fine, Obviously, people need a way to get away, whether it be meditation or listening to music or podcasts or stories or movies or whatever. But when does escapism become blinding your eye to injustice or to inequality? Um, You know, you, you can get tired of looking at people being beaten on the streets. But then what does it say about you if you see someone being beaten on the street and you just turn around and you don't help? And you don't say anything and you don't do anything like, you know, even saying and I am I'm aware of my own iniquities and the work I have to do on myself. But that's fine. Like we have to try and construct larger narratives. And like I said, better ideas. And we do that together about talking, talking about these issues sometimes. And and they're of course they're uncomfortable. Um, You know, one of the. Just as an example, saying like we, we're headed toward a time that will be worse than the sixties. You you just said that a second ago. And it kind of hit me. And I thought to myself, yeah, for white men, like it's it's always been bad for black men since the sixties. That's an incredibly good point. Right? That's
2: incredibly good point. Because I always one of the things one of the things that I go back to is, you know, we we talk about a lot of people talk about Waco and you know, you had that whole thing, but nobody realizes what happened with move in the in the 80s in, in Philadelphia. Right. Right. You know, yeah. Like no, nobody cares about that. And we've we've said that many times. I've said that on the show. I mean, I've said that like a lot of this conspiracy minded people now don't really understand. A lot of them are just like when it happens to white people. That's when they notice. But if well, it happens to somebody else, another group, another color, whatever, another race. They, they don't notice. They don't seem to notice as much. Right. And so it's just – that's, well, that's and, something and that we've talked about a lot.
1: And the thing that's interesting to me, because I maybe because I've done this for so long, and the thing that I think is frustrating to me when it comes to conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories to me, and still to a certain degree are, conspiracy theories were mental gymnastics. It was a way for me to hone and sharpen my critical thinking skills because – This crazy story would come out about an underground base and aliens fighting, and and it gave me an opportunity to stretch not only my imagination but my intellect and start figuring out what was real and what wasn't. And unfortunately, what happened was conspiracy theories became you're not supposed to think about this. This is the crazy thing that's happening, and now it's real. Stop thinking about it. Just know that – you know the uh, these people are eating babies. That's a real thing that's happening right now. They're eating babies, human human babies, right now. And before it was when I started, it was a way to say like, okay, but how wouldn't that be real? Like, what would happen to a human being who actually ingested uh, eight pounds of blood, right? Like you wouldn't be able to keep it down. You can't eat eight pounds of human blood. You'd immediately start throwing up and get sick. Like that's not a real thing. So like that doesn't make sense. And then oh, but but you know they're they're actually aliens. And 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 so you could use it as a way to hone your 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 psychology to find out what was real and what wasn't. And all of a sudden, conspiracy theories became no. This is real. There's no need to think beyond it. It's real. There's no gymnastics needed. Here it is. It's laid out. Read the numbers on the bottom of the Twitter feed. They match up to the calendar date that's in this movie that match up (laughs) that match up that match up to what Bob Dole said in 1987 that match up to what Trump just tweeted. And trust us, that's real. And that's the thing that blows my mind the most is that conspiracy theories were always about don't trust anyone.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well it got it got weaponized and I think Ken Thomas did a real good job of showing how the the Trump's rise to power was all about weaponizing these conspiracy theories. The main thing I think has happened is just that people interested in alternative information people who were into alternative information in the past, uh It was a reaction against more conservative establishments. We would read about CIA coups and stuff like that. But I think as a lot of the right wing has uh, really gained ground in in presenting themselves as the alternative to the establishment, that this is how people are getting politicized. Yes. Yes, And they're mostly people who weren't very political before. Well, and this is them being politicized through this stuff.
1: And I'll tell you what, at a very base psychological level, conspiracy theorists who were uh, left leaning saying that, you know, talking about the right in the 60s, 70s and 80s, the conspiracy theorists of then um, did not seem very powerful. They were hippies. They were pot smokers and acid heads. Uh, And there is a portion of America who looks at what they now consider the conspiracy people. Who and they all have rifles. They're all ex-military. They're very strong. They can protect you, and that to a lot of people is very comforting.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. It's very know. frightening to me, actually.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, same same here. I mean, we've we've talked a lot about. We've done a couple of shows just recently about kind of the digging into the the way that the right, the right wing has kind of organized itself historic in in looking at historical information right yeah. you know and and that to me is like i i think really like i really wanted to ask you about this because like you have your foot in both kind of those worlds like you're you know you're very well known in the paranormal world but what a lot of people don't seem to know about you is that you you're very well versed in all this kind of you know, that that old time kind of the, conspiracy stuff from the
1: sixties and seventies, like we the normal stuff. Right, yeah. <laughs> yep. We,
2: we 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 started talking about Fred Hampton, you know, like at the very mm-hmm. beginning of our conversation. You know, a lot of people don't know about that. A lot or a lot of people are finding out about it. And like they don't like the way that I see is like I just see more of like how well I'll just go ahead and say it, you know, I, I think the right wing is just more out of control ever than the left. And, you know, like, it's the way that a lot of the ways that, okay, if there's like a really a George Soros, that's like doing everything then you got to look at the right wing, too, and how that has been manipulated by the manipulated by million by the uh, by the rich by their elite, you know, people like the Koch brothers, and even people that are much more insidious that are behind it. If you you reference the show that we did with with recluse, I mean, that's. It, the research is out there. It's just nobody's paying attention to it because it's not sensational enough.
1: Well, and the other thing is too is the hardest. You know, I've said this before, probably on your show, and I've said it on Twitter a couple times. But the biggest conspiracy that no one talks about because it's too hard to wrap your mind around is that no one's in control.
2: Yes, yeah. that's that's the one
3: that I.
1: So that's you know, the it's, that I it's every, Everybody to. is vying for power, and no—I mean, but no one yeah, has if, any control over any of this stuff. Yeah. If
3: you yeah. if you want to get a good handle on what's going on, you're, you you got to look at what the competing factions, you know, that have always existed are doing. It's not it's not one. You know, people get I mean, blinded. They're either like one or the other. There's there's a lot of cabals and evil groups of people all around the whole world.
1: Right. And, you know, the thing that's crazy to me just on topic is I uh, I recently saw – when I say recently, it was like three years ago. I think it was when Trump first got elected. Uh, I saw someone post uh, a picture of uh, Trump was destroying one of Obama's FEMA camps where Obama was going to put all of the conservatives. And I – and I was like, oh wow, that's really weird. And I dug through my archives and I found the photo of Obama's FEMA camp when it was George Bush's FEMA camp. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, <laughs> and I had found George Bush's FEMA camp because it was originally Bill Clinton's FEMA camp. And I was <laughs> like I was like, this photo's been in circulation for twenty five uh, years.
2: <laughs> like it's well, crazy. You know, how how long have we heard they're gonna cancel the election? Yeah. You know, I have I've started to hear that from some, you know, much more left-leaning people that I know about this year. Yeah. The election is going to get canceled. But I was I, hearing that I was hearing that stuff come out of Alex Jones's mouth in 2008 talking right. about Bush.
1: Yeah. For sure. Um yeah, it's And the thing is, I think that's the problem. I think that people won't even look into the past, like, because we are inundated with so much information, like, it's surprising to people when they find out about someone like Fred Hampton, or they find out that a city in, you know, Pennsylvania was bombed. Like, the fact that people don't want to look five years in the past, much less 25 or 50, uh, and see that history does repeat itself, and that these factions have been warring for power, and that there is really no... Ultimate control over it. I mean, if anything, it's just millionaires trading money back and forth between themselves. But there's no point in putting anybody in a camp anymore because you need labor. You know, you just got to keep people at a barely minimum living wage thinking that they kind of like their life and they'll go to work every single day. And that's the thing that frightens me the most. You know, the people always say when uh, I'll end, uh, I'm going to have to wrap this up with you guys, but I'll end with 1984 since I kind of started with 1984. The part of 1984 that makes me cringe and worry the most isn't uh, peace is strength or war is strength and peace is freedom. None, None of that. That doesn't worry me. It doesn't even worry me the last, the last sentence of the book which is you know big brother had finally won he loved big brother that doesn't bother me the part that bothers me is when orwell disguise descri- describes the proles when he describes the people who still go to work they watch their football games they scratch their lottery tickets they drink their beer and everything is fine and yeah and they will never awaken that they could rise up and overthrow big brother but the slumbering giant will never awaken
2: i remember that part yeah Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that's that is a frightening concept for sure.
1: And then I watch on television people excited to go back to their football games and go to Las Vegas. And I see (laughs) I see that book. Yeah,
2: yeah. All right, well, guys, you got to wrap this up. Well, John, thank you so much, man. It's been really, really a pleasure having you on. my pleasure. I could uh, see here for an hour,
1: but I've got parents screaming for me.
2: Yeah, <laughs> no problem. No problem. Well, just uh, stand by real quick. Uh, we're going to close this section out. And uh, oh, John, just real quick, pl- please plug your book where people can find it.
1: Yeah, so they can go on Amazon and find Theoretical Weirdo, all of my uh, – Social media is John E.L. Tenney, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of it. So or you can just go to Google and you can type John Tenney weirdo and follow it down any rabbit hole it leads you.
2: All right. Excellent. Thank you, John. Uh, And guys, we'll be back to close out the show on Conspiranormal. all right guys welcome back just a quick wrap up that was good interview with john tinney i was really happy and satisfied with that got a little uh got a little political there at the end but uh just felt that we needed to probably cover some of that stuff
3: what did you think about all that Sergio? oh it was a great uh great talk and it's a great book uh, just kind of showing some of his unique insights and all the experience he has uh, in this in these worlds. Yeah,
2: theoretical weirdo. Uh, John is one of those people that I really really respect. He um, he's been around for a long time and he really has extensive knowledge in paranormal and Fortiana and. Weird conspiracy stuff, and like he knows just about everything you could possibly possibly know about a lot of this stuff. Um, the guys, a walking encyclopedia. Um, so, guys, just the usual, but there's one more thing that we want to talk about before we leave. Uh, we do have, and if you guys missed it, we did talk on a kind of special small little mini episode, mini or whatever, we talked about Strange Realities Conference 2020 and what we are doing for that. So, guys, we are going to be having it online. It is going to be an online conference. We are working on that at the moment, trying to figure out how we're going to do all of it. Uh, but we are putting it together, and we're going to have a lot of people that were from last year's conference, live conference, and that is going to be September 25th, 26th, and 27th, and it's going to be a pretty low price for people to come to check out, hang out with us online, watch some really good speakers. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to add about that?
3: No, we're just trying to make it a real unique experience and trying to Capture some of that uh, same communal feel and some of that same uh, hallway talk, but it affords us a lot of new opportunities to try new things too uh, for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to come to come and for us to be able to get speakers uh, who we may not have been able to get. So right, it'll be different.
2: And we're also
3: going to be doing something
2: in a couple of stages. The first stage is we're right now We've got someone editing the speaks the presentations of our speakers from last year, and the first thing that we are going to be doing is for our Patreons. We are going to be putting those up probably on a weekly basis for the next few weeks. Uh, one by the time that this is already one by the time this has dropped. You probably should at least have one, and that's the presentation by Mark Anthony Wyatt. And that's going to be – every week we're going to do that for our patrons. And then in August, about a month, we've got something else planned that we're going to do.
3: And Sergio can tell you about that. Well, we are going to actually stream that – stream last year's conference live um, for free. Uh, as a build-up to the new Strange Realities Digital Conference, so we've got a lot of really great footage, and we'll piece that together and be streaming that live in August.
2: Yeah, so you're gonna, you guys are gonna get a teaser of some of the, some of the uh, presentations that you're gonna probably, uh, what it's like to be at this conference and what we talk about. Uh, many of you that listen to the show. Probably know that already. So, uh, very very soon, if not by the time this posts, we should have the price figured out, and we which is going to be low, and we should have tickets available. To figure out how we're going to do all that. So, uh, but if you are a Patreon, you are going to get to see those first, and you can go to consp- to www.patreon.com/slashconspiranormal, and there is also our YouTube channel which is youtube.com conspiranormal and give us a nice five-star review. We would really appreciate it. So I think that's it guys. And uh, we'll be back next time with another great episode of conspiranormal.
0: patreon.com slash
1: conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our youtube channel conspiranormal podcast